how could this be happening to someone in the state that I live in, in the United States? Like, you're telling me that you experienced this in 2022? It, it, it's just, it's, it's, I really don't have any words for it. I am still stunned almost every time I go onto a prison wing. It's, it's remarkable the way we are treating American citizens and prisons today. This is the DEI Podcast. I'm Max Gaston. Over one million people sit in U.S. state prisons on any given day. These people are overwhelmingly poor, disproportionately Black, Native, Hispanic, and or members of the LGBTQ community. And all too often, they are suffering from a mental illness. On today's episode, we're joined by Madison Kemker, one of the law school's Thomas L. Schaefer Public Interest Fellows. Madison is a fellow with the Uptown People's Law Center in Chicago, where she works to help address the way people with serious mental illness are treated in Illinois prisons. Madison is also an attorney in the Uptown People's Law Center's litigation against the Illinois Department of Corrections in the matter of Rasho v. Jeffries, an effort that seeks to bring an end to a quality of mental health service in Illinois prisons that is alleged to be so poor that it violates the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. We'll talk about the Rasho v. Jeffries case with Madison and also discuss the powerful experiences Madison has had working with inmates and witnessing the state of mental health service in Illinois prisons. We'll also discuss Madison's time as a law student and what advice she has for students looking to forge a path in public interest. Madison, welcome to the DEI podcast. Hey, Max, thanks for having me. This is so exciting that Notre Dame has kind of jump-started this opportunity for students to talk about the cool things they're doing after graduation. So thank you again for the invite. The first thing that I wanted to talk about is Rasho v. Jeffries. So a major focus of your work is actually monitoring and enforcing the settlement agreement that was reached with the Illinois Department of Corrections in that matter. Can you just give us some background on Rasho v. Jeffries? Tell us a little bit about what the case was and where things stand right now. Absolutely. So in 2007, I was 11 years old and my organization in Chicago, the Uptown People's Law Center, along with Equip for Equality, another legal aid nonprofit, and then the large law firms of Mayor Brown and Dentons worked together to file a class action lawsuit alleging that mental health care in Illinois prisons was so poor and so inadequate that it, it amounted to cruel and unusual punishment and it violated the Constitution. Um, today I'm 26 and now I'm litigating these issues. So it's incredibly frustrating to think here we are, you know, 15 years later with very little, if any, headway made. Um, in 2015, an agreement was reached between the Illinois Department of Corrections and the Rasho litigation team, the organizations I just mentioned. Um, there were definitive steps that IDOC needed to take. There were requirements for minimum amounts of out-of-cell time, for minimum interfaces with mental health professionals, with psychiatrists, and most importantly, there were minimum increases to staffing that had to occur because notably, the Illinois Department of Corrections is continually saying the largest part 
of the problem of inadequate mental health care comes from the fact that they are so grossly understaffed. They cannot hire enough people to come in and do this work. Um, so we you know, reached this agreement in 2015. They started monitoring it. I, you know, developed my fellowship proposal based on the idea that in 2022, we would still be monitoring it. Um, but unfortunately, IDOC was never able to actually rise to the challenge. We um, filed motions asking the court to hold IDOC in contempt. The independent monitor continued to release quarterly scathing reviews of IDOC's progress. And after a string of hearings last spring that we were also discussing before the podcast, um, the agreement completely fell apart. And so right now there isn't an agreement in place at all, and we are preparing for trial. So while I thought I would be visiting prisons, interviewing clients, and truly monitoring, you know, data, doing data analytics as it relates to the legal process, things like that. I'm doing all of that, plus discovery and document re review, attending depositions, helping prepare motions, and still doing these expert tours. So it's it's been much different than I think what I anticipated, but it's an incredible experience. And I feel so lucky that Notre Dame has afforded me the opportunity to get this unique, you know, cutting edge civil rights class action experience a couple of months out of law school. It's really remarkable. So there are a couple of areas I'd like to explore. First, you mentioned that the independent monitor who was appointed by the court was continuously releasing scathing reviews against the Illinois Department of Corrections on how they were failing to provide mental health services in compliance with the agreement reached in the rational litigation. Recent data from the Prison Policy Initiative found that over 43% of people in state prisons generally have been diagnosed with a mental disorder, and 74% of people in state prisons reported not receiving really any kind of mental health care at all while they were incarcerated. What can you tell us about the state of mental health and the quality of mental health services in Illinois prisons today? Yeah, Max, well, you really hit the issue, I think, right on the head of the nail in asking that question. Um, if you go to the Uptown People's Law Center's website, you can actually view the most recent independent monitor's report um, relating to the ratio litigation that discusses what this independent monitor saw, both when he was in prisons touring them um, and the data, the evidence he gathered from different people working um, in the prisons and interviews. And so within this monitor's report, he found the Illinois Department of Corrections to be completely non-compliant in most of the areas that the agreement concerned. Um, for example, the Illinois Department of Corrections was completely non-compliant in requirements to increase mental health staffing, to increase mental health one-on-ones, to see people, um, to provide people with mental health engagement from doctors when they're on crisis watch or suicide watch, to provide people with any kind of evaluation once they're put in segregation. So we're talking about what you mentioned, very basic level mental health interventions. We're not talking about making sure people in prison have access to you know, a therapist at Beck and Call whenever they need. We're talking about really basic mental health needs that are not being met. People being put on very strong psychotropic meds and then not seeing a psychiatrist for, you know, three months in some cases. People being put in segregation and not being let out of their cell for any kind of treatment for months at a time. So these are major problems that again, are not, you know, what we view to be luxury. This is just a minimum standard of care. We think that the Illinois Department of Corrections is not providing. Um, and, you know, the monitor said that he found the same thing that we've been fighting 
for, for you know, now 15 years. Prison is an extremely loud, violent, and dehumanizing environment, where routine exposure to violence has been found to develop post-traumatic stress symptoms like anxiety, depression, avoidance, hypersensitivity, suicidality, hypervigilance, and difficulty with emotional regulation. Owing to a long and complicated history of institutional discrimination, prisons are disproportionately filled with Black and Hispanic people. We often talk about the disturbingly high numbers of people with mental health disorders locked up in prisons. But less attention is paid to the ways in which incarceration itself and the conditions in which people are incarcerated perpetuate this problem by creating and worsening symptoms of mental illness and causing a ripple effect that is especially felt in the black and brown communities disproportionately incarcerated in state prisons. Madison gave us a first-hand account of the alarming prison conditions she's personally witnessed and explained how the prison environment can have a deteriorating impact on a person's mental health. So, Max, when I was in sixth grade, we had an art project where we had to look down the hallway, find the perspective in the hallway, and then draw the hallway because it came to a point, right? It's kind of like an inverted triangle. So when I walked onto the wing of one of these prisons during the expert tours, I had never actually seen a hallway in real life come to a point, right? When I was in middle school, that middle school wasn't all that big, and it kind of came to a rectangle at the end, but it never actually came to a point. On the wing of that prison, it did come to a point. And the entire hall was filled with people in cages and it was multiple levels high. And so for me, it doesn't matter how you cut it. That can't be mental health care. If you are seriously mentally ill and you are put in a cage with hundreds or thousands of people around you, that's not mental health care and that's not conducive to mental health treatment. Right. So that's just one example of how even if we have enough mental health care providers to provide excellent mental health care when we pull them out of their cells, if we're putting them back in torturous conditions, how effective would that mental health be anyway? And so, you know, when we talk about all of the things that need to change in prison, it's absolutely, you know, improving mental health care. We have to make sure people have access to mental health services. Prison is not a therapeutic place, even if you don't have mental health issues before you go in. The odds that at some point you will need them while you are there are pretty significant. And so the idea that, you know, this would be apparent to the state and the state not take better action, to me, is aberrant. It's it's mind-boggling. You've got a third of your prison population with a very distinct medical issue, right? With a mental health issue that you as a state agency have defined. Yet this is how we are housing them. Mm. The things that you're saying are really, really sobering. Just to distinguish for people, there's a difference between a cell and a cage, and you're talking about cages. No, I'm talking about cells. Mm. I am talking about a hallway that came to a point that was filled with cells. I said cages because that's what it, I mean, that's what, that's it, what looks it looks like. like. If you've ever been into a vet's office or to a dog boarding facility, it is just a hallway of cages. And the I don't, you know, I don't know how familiar people are with the size of cells, but for context, in Illinois, there is no state law that says 
state prisons have to have cells of certain minimum size. There are federal laws for federal prisons, and there are some laws that pertain to jails in Illinois, but there aren't any for prisons. And so I can tell you, I went into one of those cells. I'm 5'4". I extended my right arm out, and it touched one arm, and I held my other arm at a 15-degree angle, and it touched the other side of the cell. So we're talking about a cell that isn't even my arms with. I couldn't even spread my arm straight out side to side. I had one arm straight out and one kind of cocked at a 15 degree angle. This room was so small that I felt uncomfortable being in it just for a couple of moments. And it's loud, right? It's not like you're closed in. It's very, very loud because there are multiple levels and everyone essentially has this clear bar as a door. Many prisons throughout the United States are overcrowded, which makes the inherently negative carceral environment even worse. Overcrowding often means longer periods spent locked in a small cage, less privacy, and fewer opportunities to participate in programming and work assignments. A study cited by the Prison Policy Initiative found that overcrowding is highly correlated with prison suicide. While some may call it rhetoric to refer to a prison cell as a cage, in an overcrowded prison, when the cell is so small that you can't even extend your arms without touching the walls, the characterization starts to seem less rhetorical and more literal. Mm. It really makes me wonder about the different aspects that bear on our mental health. And certainly one of them is your conditions of confinement, certainly something that affects a person's mental well-being. I mean, we've got claustrophobia, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Those parts of uh, how you're being treated as as a prisoner really will likely make a difference. Not only the conditions, Max, but it's also being witnessing the mental health trauma of the people around you, right? When you have someone in your cell next, in the cell next to you, self-harming actively, and you see COs standing by, pointing and not engaging, imagine how demoralizing that is. Or you get put on crisis watch because you are having suicidal thoughts, and then you don't see a mental health care provider for days at a time. Again, so it's both personal trauma and it's the trauma that you're experiencing by way of the failures of other people around you. It's, it's, a, it's a really, really harsh place to be. And most of my clients I talk to say the worst part is just how it feels like people don't care. Like it's less about how awful and inadequate the treatment is and more about how it's just making them feel completely forgotten. Being in prison can be inherently damaging to a person's mental health by removing them from society and eliminating meaning and purpose from their lives. We often think of incarceration as something people live through and from which they can ultimately be released. But the reality is that time spent in prisons can create a host of collateral consequences that haunt individuals even after they're released. As the research shows, incarceration can trigger and worsen symptoms of mental illness, and those effects can last long after someone leaves the prison gates. At the very least, prison is painful, and incarcerated persons often suffer long-term consequences from having been subjected to that pain. Madison explained the alarming fact that due to issues such as overcrowding, 
mental health assessments in Illinois prisons not only happen quickly, but take place at self-front, where everyone around can see and hear what is being discussed. So that, so that is, you know, one example. Another thing I've seen and heard about quite frequently was that whenever engagements happen with mental health care providers or psychiatrists, they happen at self-front in front of correctional officers and in front of the rest of the people in the prison. And so I imagine it would be extraordinarily difficult to divulge the difficult feelings or thoughts I'm having in that situation. Why is it that a mental health care provider would have to have a prison guard or correctional officer in the room when they're trying to conduct a mental health assessment? Well, it's it's not, you know, it's not even that, Mac. They're not going in a room. The CO is just standing on the wing while the mental health professional comes onto the wing and stands in front of everyone's cage and then walks down four feet and says, hi, Mr. So-and-so, are you still having suicidal thoughts? How is the Haldol treating you today? Okay, thank you, and moves down one more cell. And that is the engagement with mental health they're receiving. So again, we're not, we're not even talking about COs or security team coming and pulling someone out of their cell, taking them to a room, and them only having you know a short one-on-one with a therapist or a short one-on-one with their doctor. We are talking about the mental health care being provided is being provided cell front less than five minutes long in front of other people in prison and security staff, right? It, it's the opposite of a therapeutic environment. It, it's not even baseline. Like, how can that even be viewed as being effective? Just put yourselves in their shoes for a second. How could you talk about any issue you're having with people who you're afraid of might retaliate against you, take advantage of you, or do who knows what with that information? It would be entirely legal and fine and appropriate for the mental health counselor to say, actually, I would like to pull this guy out of his cell and go speak to him in a private room. They aren't doing that. Prison administrators may at times respond to overcrowding by actually foregoing screening and monitoring of high-risk inmates, partly because there are too many of them to carefully assess and partly because the system lacks the capacity to address their special needs anyway. As one group of clinicians conceded, unfortunately, the prospect of screening inmates for mental disorders and treating those in need of mental health services has become a daunting and nearly impossible task in the present explosion of prison growth. So let's start with you know, what it looks like to have a mental health problem, I guess, in a prison. When you are in prison, if you start to have thoughts of suicidal ideation or homicidal ideation or any thoughts of self-harm, you are to call a crisis team. A crisis team is supposed to be at least a mental health care provider with a group of like someone who is licensed to provide mental health care with a group of other people who are also involved in the provision of mental health services. Um, you're supposed to receive counseling. You're supposed to then go into a different room to decompress. You're supposed to be checked every 10, 15, or 30 minutes for multiple days. It is supposed to be a highly intensive treatment environment. And for someone who is thinking of ending their life or the lives of others, um, what we often see is that people are put on crisis watch and not checked for hours or days at a time and significantly self-harm themselves and have to be sent to an outside hospital or ultimately do commit suicide. So that that's a problem, right? If you if we have a system in place where you say, okay, person in prison, you are experiencing this condition, 
were to take these steps and this is how we will respond and they don't respond that way and that person then harms themselves in a more serious way, that is a violation of the Eighth Amendment, I believe. Another example would be when you have someone on psychotropic meds, they're supposed to see a psychiatrist at least once a month, if not more, to talk about how the meds are doing with them. And then they come visit them and they do so cell front in front of CEOs and other people in prison, right? And so if that medication is causing you to be very sedated, you're not going to say that out loud in a group of people that you don't feel safe in. You're not going to say, no, this is way too strong a medication. I don't feel like I can respond. I feel very hazy, you know, among other medical issues. And so it's things, it's, you know, things like that, that are just so deeply disturbing that this isn't even baseline mental health care. Madison, what steps do you take when you find that the standard of care provided in Illinois prisons which based on our discussion seems to be a distressingly low standard already. But when you find that the standard of care falls to a level that you consider to be cruel and unusual punishment, what steps do you take? Yeah, this is the hardest part of my job. Um, On any given day, I usually talk to between one and three or four people in prison. And they tell me candid aberrant stories about the treatment they're receiving, both from mental health professionals and in mental health settings, but also more generally. Because this is a class action lawsuit and I am in the role of a class action attorney, it is very difficult to engage substantively on individual issues. And so whenever something particularly difficult to hear comes across my desk or into my ear, I guess, when I'm on the phone, um, I do my best to share that with my bosses and ask if there are resources that we can engage to get this person some kind of relief. But largely it's a, you know, I'm so sorry to hear you're going through this. That's absolutely wrong. You're a person on American soil in prison. This is not how you are to be treated. I'm going to let my bosses know this is going on. But unfortunately, you know, until this class action is resolved, I'm not sure that I can engage in a substantive way. And it's awful. It's, there are people across the state who are suffering, right? You've got 29,000 people in Illinois prisons um, right now, and anywhere from 11 to 12,000 of them have been identified as seriously mentally ill by the Illinois Department of Corrections. So they have a screening process that everyone who comes into the Department of Corrections goes through, and they themselves, right, are finding that more than a third of the people that they are charged with taking care of have mental illness. So it, you're right, Max, it's, it's a really difficult thing. But I try to remember that, you know, every legal call I take, it gets somebody out of their cell. I'm listening to them. They know that someone cares and is paying attention. And right now, that's the biggest impact I can have. So it can be difficult to keep perspective. But, you know, you just yeah. got to do it, right? These are people who, who really need help and who I think are largely being forgotten. Madison, the point about people in prisons as people who are being forgotten is something I'd like to explore more closely. You know, a lot of times when reading about prison statistics, there can be a tendency to disassociate those statistics with the lives of real people. When the numbers are so staggering, you know, when the prison population in a state is in the high tens or low hundred thousands, it's possible to reach a saturation point where those numbers stop having any real meaning and and it can be desensitizing. But the fact remains that these are real people that we're talking about. 
you know, the the narrowing hall of cages that comes to a point, the exposure to all kinds of violence and trauma and verbal abuse, the, the isolation, the lack of recreation and, and the apathy from administrators towards uh, outcomes like suicide and depression and mental decline. These things are happening to real people every single day in the states where we're living. What can you tell us about the human beings that you meet on a daily basis for whom these abject conditions that we only hear or read about are their everyday experiences? What I have found is that the people in prison that I talk to are the most resilient and understanding people I have found on the planet. And I never thought that I would say that. They are, they, they're just incredible. They have been you know, oftentimes dealt some of the most difficult circumstances. And that's not to say they haven't made mistakes and they haven't, you know, broken the law in some instances. At the end of the day, these are people. And so the idea that I am a person standing in front of them, listening to their story, it, it, it's sometimes an out-of-body experience. It's like, how could this be happening to someone in the state that I live in, in the United States? Like, you're telling me that you experienced this in 2022 it it's it's just it's it's i really don't have any words for it i am still stunned almost every time i go onto a prison wing i am still speechless a lot of the times when i end a legal call with someone it's it's remarkable the way we are treating american citizens and prisons today Madison, I want to go back to something that we were talking about before, the idea that the the prison system itself can can create and then perpetuate mental health issues. And specifically, the idea that the longer certain people are in prison, uh, the more likely they are to develop worsening mental health symptoms, uh, which may especially be true for people who are in solitary confinement. In our last episode, we talked with our Bank of America Foundation fellows about exoneration justice and the fact that many people in prisons have been incarcerated for decades of their life. To what extent do you think the mental diagnoses reported in state prisons may actually be brought on or be worsened by a person's extended incarceral status? Oh, I think without a doubt, that's what occurs. And I think you see that, right? It's, you know, when I have had limited opportunities to review some people in prisons, medical records and mental health records. And that is what you see. And it makes a lot of sense, right? If you have someone who is, I don't know, quote, fully functioning or without mental health issues, but yet was still exposed to some level of trauma on the outside world, whether that be through poverty or otherwise, now they're in prison dealing with that trauma, being separated from their family. They're in an awful environment and they're surrounded by people who are experiencing mental health crises who aren't receiving help. So of course they start to deteriorate, not to mention the fact that solitary confinement and segregation in Illinois, I, it's, it's, it's nothing less than disgusting. So I wanna draw attention to two different aspects of segregation that to me are the most heinous. Um, but before we get too far down that road, I just wanna point out that segregation has a variety of names. And so when you read true crime or when you listen to podcasts, you may hear something called segregation or solitary confinement, or administrative disciplinary confinement, or SEG, all of these things mean the same thing. You are separated from the rest of the prison 
Um, sometimes it's disciplinary, sometimes it's not, but you are in a cell alone with restricted property and restricted privileges. So we're going to start with conditions first. The conditions in these cells are aberrant. First of all, they are extremely, extremely small. Last fall, I had the opportunity to tour a series of maximum security prisons in Southern Illinois with our experts, one of them being Dr. Craig Haney, who is an incredible psychologist, lawyer, um, was a teaching assistant on the Stanford Prison Project. So he truly has dedicated his entire life to understanding the ways in which not only prison, but extreme confinement like solitary impacts people even without mental health, but people specifically with mental health. Like, why is this such an issue? So first of all, one of the things we saw was the size of these cells. And so I can't even extend my full five, four wingspan in this cell to measure it side to side. Um, so I have to imagine that being confined in that space for 22 and a half to 23 and a half or even 24 hours a day is awful. Um, additionally, you know, there is no cleaning staff for segregation. Typically there is supposed to be, you know, porters who can be um, different people who are in prison who have these jobs can come do some sort of cleaning, but typically people in segregation are giving cleaning supplies themselves and are told to take care of their cell. Um, but these are not like, you know, a bottle of 409 and a scrub brush. It's like you get three paper towels and, you know, a little bit of hand soap and they say clean up your cell, right? A lot of our clients report going into cells that have blood or feces on the wall and or the mattress and or the floor. They report cells that smell because there's mold, mildew, biological materials all over these places. And so the conditions are awful. Um, when we talk about the impact on mental health, there's a couple of different things we need to point out. First of all, being confined to a cell alone for someone who has any kind of mental illness is a really, really scary thing because you are alone with your thoughts without any outlet to work through them. And so even if people do not have mental illness when going into segregation, a good number of them develop mental health challenges as a result of it because they are entirely confined and separated from all sorts of human contact, if not all stimuli, right? You don't have books. You're having very, very limited out of cell time. You don't really receive a whole lot of phone calls unless they're legal related. These people have been deprived of all sorts of stimulus. And so between the conditions, and the fact that those conditions exasperate mental health, and even if you don't have those issues, they are awful enough such that you could develop them. It really is a problem to confine people in this way. Mm. How long are people typically in segregation or solitary confinement? That's a great question. Um, so it really depends on the infraction that you've been placed in segregation for, if it's disciplinary. So you know, if you don't listen to a direct order, like making your bed, that can land you in segregation for a number of days, a number of weeks, or a number of months, depending on whether that was a solo infraction or if there were other things involved. Um, when you are placed in, for example, um, administrative segregation, you're being investigated to see if you could be related to gang activity in the prison. And so that's for an indefinite amount of time. One of the challenges with segregation that we see as it relates to mental health, though, is because the impact on mental health is so severe, our clients have a very, very difficult time not racking up additional infractions and violations while they're in segregation. So even if they're only sentenced to SEG for five to seven days, if they get into SEG and get into any kind of trouble, that could be requesting a crisis team because they're having 
you know, challenging mental health thoughts, um, and, and then the prisoner doesn't respond to that mental health team well, that can land them an infraction and additional time in segregation. And so when we go to court and we read different filings, typically we hear prisons talk about, well, the sentences are reasonable. It's five to seven days for an infraction. It's seven to 14 days for this infraction. It's 21 days for this, et cetera, et cetera. What they fail to mention and describe is that, again, the conditions are so aberrant that it impacts people's mental health in such a real and practical way that that five to seven day sentence is suddenly five or six months long. Mm. And so the problem is once you get into segregation, it can be very, very, very difficult to get out because you're not having regular contact with your mental health providers. You don't have access to any kind of stimulus out of cell time, books, reading materials, things to listen to, things to watch. You are alone in your cell with no property for 22 and a half to 24 hours a day. We've seen situations, I've heard of situations where people are in segregation for uh years and sometimes decades at a time. Is that something that you've you've experienced or you are familiar with? Absolutely. Um, our clients frequently share stories with my organization and even myself. I personally had clients share how they have gotten ridiculous sentences. Um, so whether they are threatened with these sentences by prison officials, whether these are sentences they are given and then are later expunged, um, it's really hard for us to say, but we do have clients who are sentenced to decades in segregation or, you know, two years in segregation or a year in segregation. And that's, that's ridiculous. How, what crime could have been committed in a prison such that really the only response is putting someone in a box less than the wingspan of a 5'4 person for over a year, for over six months. I mean, really, we're talking about serious deprivations of all stimulus. It's, mm -hmm. it's remarkable, Max, it's remarkable. Madison, coming back to Rasho v. Jeffries, given that the initial settlement agreement has fallen through, what is the Uptown People's Law Center seeking in the class action moving forward? Totally. So we filed a fourth amended complaint that has much more specific claims than the one I'm about to share with you. But generally, it's the same thing that we wanted in 2007. We want minimum amounts of out-of-cell time for people who are labeled as seriously mentally ill and for people who are in segregation over a minimum number of days. Um, there's a desire for increased interfaces with mental health professionals and psychiatric services. We want better programming, more um, you know, educational programs. We're talking about like an entire revamp of the mental health system, right? Now, what's important to remember is what we think would be the ideal mental health care system in a perfect world is nowhere near what is constitutionally required, right? And so that's another point that sometimes can be difficult for me as someone recently out of law school to kind of think about is that even if we get to a point where the Illinois Department of Corrections is providing mental health care that is constitutionally minimally adequate, is that still enough? Is that something that we Americans are still comfortable with? Is the floor something that should be enforced or should do we need to raise it a little bit? And so so I guess the, the broader answer to your question is we want improved mental health care. More specifically, I think we want increased engagement with mental health care providers and psychiatric services, increased out of cell time and better engagement when people are in crisis or on suicide watch. So you described earlier how for years, 
even though there was a settlement agreement and then an injunction in place, the independent monitor repeatedly found that IDOC consistently failed to follow the required terms. If the Uptown People's Law Center wins the litigation and is successful in obtaining relief from the court, how would things be different this time so that if the Illinois Department of Corrections is failing to adhere to the terms of the court order, there would actually be some kind of consequence? Well, so it's this is a little bit you know frustrating to discuss because really when the settlement agreement was in place, there were several times that the court found IDOC was in contempt of the agreement, that they were not holding up their end of the deal. And so essentially the only difference if we were to win the lawsuit would be that there would be no way for the quote agreement to follow fall through. We would be able to do injunctions and find them in contempt over and over and over and over again. But again, this is a state agency. So we can only compel them to do much, right? When when the court says you have to hire XYZ more people, they have to go to the legislature and say, appropriate more money. We need XYZ more people because the court is telling us. And the legislature says, um, no, thank you. We're not hiring that many people. Good try. Or they give you enough money to do so, right? And so it's a really complicated mess. It's going to be much of the same that it was in 2015 until 2021. It's going to be following up with clients, figuring out what's going on, and then filing motions for contempt and preliminary injunctions to get IDOC to do what they are constitutionally required to. It's a really disheartening thing to think about because effectively we're dealing with the very complex and nuanced litigation system. And when you actually are able to get relief in front of a judge, then you're dealing with federal or state budgetary constraints, right? So theorize with me for a moment, if you will. Given how complicated a web this is, What does the picture of actually changing the system look like, in your opinion? I mean, how can we actually get ourselves to a point where we can start to see progress taking place? Well, I think we have to change the political landscape around what the criminal legal system is, right? Because it's not a criminal justice system. It's a criminal legal system. It is a legal system that that people who commit crimes are subjected to, but it does not always produce fair and equitable justice. Um, and so I think for state agencies to be compelled to act, there has to be some level of political power. And right now there's not, right? C- crime rates have been really, really high for the past couple of years across the nation. And I think people are really scared again about crime. And so right now, the idea that we would be, quote, you know, dumping resources into a prison isn't the most attractive thing for voters. And so I think it comes down to a shift in the way we think about people who get involved with the criminal legal system. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting because you start to look at the broader systemic issues and it's just this web of different factors that impact one another. You know, it is- Poverty, gun violence, bad schools. You know, it's, it's it's not someone goes out and shoots another person because they're feeling malicious that day. I have yet to meet a client who I'm like, wow, you really just committed a crime in cold blood. It is never that. These people are put in awful situations and forced to make decisions that are between a rock and a hard place. And you do the best you can. And sometimes you end up in prison. And that's not, again, to defend any of the people who are hurt by crimes. Crime is an awful thing. So is prison. 
And we need to be careful that we're not victimizing and traumatizing hundreds of thousands of extra Americans because of the way we're dealing with crime. Mm. There's so much in what you're saying. In the first instance, we know that not everyone in prison, and our listeners know this from our last episode, not everyone in prison is someone who committed the crime, right? Exoneration exists because innocent people get wrongfully convicted. There's that piece of it. And then there's the piece that even if you're guilty of something, you are still owing of human rights. You still right. have a certain amount of treatment that you should be entitled to as a human a being. A conviction does not in any way separate constitutional rights from your person. So just because you're in an Illinois prison, that does not mean that Illinois has any right to treat you really that much differently than a regular citizen outside of the permission they've been given by the state legislature. Mm. So the big idea really then is legislative reform is and changing the way that we as citizens think of the prison populations and understanding its connection to mental health is perhaps the best hope that we can have to see actual changes in the lives of, uh, of people in Illinois prisons? Well, I don't know that it's the best hope, but I, it is one hope that we have. I feel lucky that there are incredible institutions across the state of Illinois who are all working on prison reform. Um, I'm at the Uptown People's Law Center, so we focus on class action civil rights litigation. Um, they also have class action suits about solitary confinement and inadequate medical care, which I do some work on as well. And so, you know, I think our best hope really, Max, is continuing to remind people in general that people in prisons are just people. They are just people. They have families and parents and kids and dogs. They went to school. They have favorite colors, favorite foods, and favorite basketball teams. And until we start remembering that and stop acting like a crime changes the true essence of someone, I'm not sure that we're going to find a whole a lot of relief in general. Madison, I want to read you a quote from the Prison Policy Initiative when it was examining mental health in the United States generally. The data reveals policy failures that begin in our communities. Governments have chipped away at the social safety net and accessible community-based treatment for years while spending on the carceral system has increased. As law enforcement and courts respond to mental illness like it's a crime, prisons and jails fill up with people who have serious mental health needs. Despite how ill-suited these facilities are for providing these services, prisons and jails have become some of our nation's largest de facto mental health care providers since the deinstitutionalization of public psychiatric hospitals beginning in the 1950s. What are your thoughts on this really powerful indictment that the growing practice in the United States has been to sweep people experiencing mental health crisis into the criminal legal system instead of redirecting them to community-based services? I am so glad you asked this question, Max, because I think right now you see movements across the nation trying to address this. We see some communities adopting community-based policing. We see some communities trying to take a different approach. I want to call out actually a specific city, um, New York City and Mayor Adams, actually, because while you called out you know, a huge problem, 
Mayor Adams has put in place what he views to be in a solution. And I think it's important to call out all of the problems with what he is encouraging when it comes to addressing mental health with the criminal legal system. So Mayor Adams decided that it is deplorable that people in New York City who do not have the ability to take care of themselves have no way to really get that help unless they can have someone go to court for them and get them committed, essentially. So he said it was a myth that first responders can only involuntarily commit those who displayed an overt act. And instead, the law allows first responders to involuntarily commit those who cannot meet their own basic human needs. And so that's 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 a really intense position, right? And so on one hand, we have the legal system saying, okay, if you commit a crime, if you are found competent to stand trial, it doesn't really matter if you have mental illness, you're going to prison. And then we have someone like Mayor Adams saying, okay, if you have mental illness and you can't care for yourself, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to institutionalize you myself. Mm. Those are those are very similar, right? The state is picking up people and is saying, okay, you are now under our care and custody. In theory, Mayor Adams' program would be providing significant and substantial mental health care. We don't know that it's doing that. We have no idea what this program is, right? And so I think we have to be careful and strategic when we address the problems that you called out. I think ensuring that people who are mentally ill maintain some level of autonomy has to remain at the center of this conversation, or we're just going to end up institutionalizing people in a much different way, right? Instead of going to prison, they're just going to go to a different type of state agency, which is a state hospital. And if we're not careful, we will end up with conditions like we had in the 1950s, right, which led them to close anyway. And so for me, I don't know what the right answer is. I think having, you know, better community safety nets, better community-based policing, better communities in general, I think would improve mental health outcomes, like not ending up in prison. But the idea that the state would at all be making unilateral decisions to provide someone with mental health care, I think should cause everyone pause, right? Because we already have institutions across the nation that say, okay, if you're mentally ill and you're in prison, we're going to take care of you. And they're not doing it. Mm. So the idea that we would, again, task the state with providing a different type of resource to me makes me nervous. I think we have to do something, but I do not trust the state at this point to provide mentally ill people with both appropriate care and the level of autonomy that they're entitled to. Madison, when you spend so much time yourself interacting with people who are in these traumatizing circumstances uh, and who are experiencing serious mental health issues, what steps do you take to look after your own mental health and avoid things like burnout and secondhand trauma, which I can say as a former civil rights attorney is a very real thing? Absolutely. Um, you're totally right, you know, and it's funny when I was at the ACLU of Indiana as an intern, the one of the first things they said was, you really need to look after yourself. And so they recommended the book, um, The Body Keeps the Count, which is, you know, kind of a trauma stewardship type book. So I've read that. Um, and I feel very lucky that the entire staff at my organization 
has a similar approach to that work. Executive director, legal supervisors, paralegals, everybody is on the same page. And that is, this is very difficult and often, you know, pretty disgusting and slimy work. The things that we're seeing and the things that we're seeing the state do specifically is awful. And so the best thing we can do is exist as a community. We share the experiences we have with each other and we take off time as needed. Just last week, I told my boss that, you know, I'm feeling kind of under the weather. And one of them looked at my calendar and was like, okay, you've been doing a ton of legal calls. You might be sick, but you might be tired. Maybe you should take the afternoon to take a nap. And so I did because my boss gave me the latitude to do so. That's huge. So I feel grateful that I'm with an organization that understands the heaviness of this work um, and takes care to really help me take care of myself. I think that that's really, really important to hear, Madison, because when we're talking to folks in the public interest space and students who want to go into public interest, conversations about burnout come up a lot. And I think the very, it's very often that you find people pivoting to remember your why, remember why you're in right. this work and why you're doing this. And I completely think that that's significant and you, it's critical to keeping you where you are, but I don't think it's enough. I think you need to have what you just described. You need to have an employer that's going to support you taking the time that you need in order to make sure that you're okay. Otherwise, remembering the why without looking after your own mental health will diminish the reserves that you have to make a difference. Absolutely. Loving the work is not enough, right? Because if it were, we probably wouldn't have mental health issues, right? Like if, if the world didn't impact us, this wouldn't be a problem. But the thing is, it does. And so being exposed to any societal issue, to anyone's trauma, to anyone's suffering will weigh on you. And so you're absolutely right. Remembering the why is important because it keeps you centered. And for me, it gives me a lot of hope, right? On my day to day, I don't make a huge impact. I talk to a lot of people and I listen to a lot of people, but most of those people I don't help. And I won't help for a year or two if I do, right? That's a really difficult thing to think about. And just remembering, well, you know, if we're able to help them, that's great. That's not going to do it. So yeah. I would love to see even a community of, you know, Notre Dame lawyers who are doing prison or, you know, social change type work, kind of develop a community and continue to connect that way. I know there's a pretty significant number of us doing it in the Midwest. And so I'd love to see more Notre Damers kind of get up here and do that as well. Well, speaking of Notre Dame, I want to shift to talking about the Schaefer Fellowship um, and the experiences that you had that led you to your current position. And maybe the first place to start is, you know, working on mental illness in the prison system is a relatively specific line of work. How did you <laughs> become interested in this issue? That is a great question and one I often have to think about as well. <laughs> um, after my 2L year, I was at the ACLU of Indiana and was exposed to conditions of confinement work. I actually thought I was going to be doing freedom of speech research and started reading prison mail or I guess letters that come into the ACLU's office as part of my duties. And there were just tons of letters from prisoners talking about what they were experiencing. And I just really couldn't believe it. I was stunned. Because I knew that prison was not therapeutic and prison was not nice. But I don't think I understood that prison truly was abuse and trauma and torture in a lot of ways. And so I started reading these letters and I didn't feel like I could look away. And so I started doing research and I found the ratio litigation literally by a Google search. And I cold called the legal director and left her a voicemail and said, I want to do a fellowship. 
on this, please call me back. <laughs> and so that was kind of how it happened. She called me back and she was like, okay, you know, what's your deal? Why do you want to do this work? What's your background? What have you done? Are you able to do this, you know, kind of on your own? This is a legal aid organization. I'm not going to hold your hand. No one is holding your hand. Can you come do prison litigation and stand somewhat on your own two feet? Not totally. I'm definitely not on my own, but you know, to some degree you had to be a self-starter. And so I told her I could commit to that. And suddenly I was in prisons all the time talking to people with mental health issues. And so again, I, I can't thank Notre Dame enough for this opportunity because I am truly doing my dream job months out of graduation from law school. And that's, that's so rare. Like no one gets to do that. I just, I feel so over the moon lucky and privileged that I get to advocate for the group of people I do. And it would not be possible without this fellowship. Madison, tell me a bit more about the Schaefer Fellowship and what the fellowship entails. Yeah, so the Schaefer Fellowship was named after a former dean and professor of the law school that is adored and loved, especially by Patty at the CDO. So if anyone needs any stories about <laughs> Professor Schaefer, Dean Schaefer, please go talk to Patty and tell her I said hi. Um, but he was from what I can tell, an incredible philanthropist while being a professor, right? He was huge into social change. He tried to really lift up the South Bend community while being a dean and being involved with the law school. And so Notre Dame has a fellowship named after him. They give two of them each year. And students can kind of pitch proposals that would focus. I think one of them is underserved communities, which is what I focused mine on. You present a proposal, you get interviewed, and then you know, they choose, I guess, the people who will receive the fellowships. And so I chose Notre Dame partially because they had a fellowship program that all law schools do. Um, and so that was really, really appealing to me. I didn't know if I wanted to totally do public interest work quite yet. I wasn't fully committed, but I had an idea that I had a passion for that. And so I at least, you know, wanted to know that there would be support for public interest students and maybe even a path to getting a job after graduation. Mm. Yeah, and obviously the path worked out for you. Um, <laughs> I would love to hear, Madison, about your experiences while you were at the law school um, and your involvement in public interest during those three years. Absolutely. Um, so my 1L year, I was able to take part in the Domestic Violence Survivors Advocacy Clinic. We helped young women who had, um, I guess, a criminal background have some of those crimes expunged. And so that was kind of my first, I guess, experience with Notre Dame and social or pro bono work. And I was shocked to see the huge group of people that showed up to all do this clinic. I just, I didn't expect it. And I also loved that it was mostly women who showed up. So I was like, okay, this is pretty awesome that Notre Dame's like, we are a group of strong-minded social justice warrior women, and we're going to get in there and help South Bend. So that was really cool. That was kind of my first you know, introduction into it. Obviously, Notre Dame has public interest week or public interest month, excuse me, in October, which is incredible for introducing students to different nonprofit organizations um, and hearing about different types of work. It was one of the ways I learned about the ACLU of Indiana. I didn't even know what the ACLU really did, right? I knew that they were suing the government when the government crossed the line. And I thought that was great, but I wasn't even fully exposed to the full extent of what they did. So, you know, I always took part in the public interest months. And then I applied for funding, right, to have a public interest summer after my 2L year, worked at the ACLU of Indiana, came back um, 
and took Professor McAward's civil rights class, and that was incredible. So highly recommend any student who's interested in social change or social justice, even constitutional law. Her class is fantastic, and she is a great professor. Professor McAward shared with her civil rights class, I think towards the end of the semester, um, the connection to civil rights that Notre Dame actually has. And so because I was born and raised Catholic, I knew that as a Catholic school, Notre Dame was pro-human rights in general, I would say. Um, I was not aware of this link. And I think it's important for students to know because it goes to the legacy of human rights, civil rights, social impact that Notre Dame has had. During the passage of the Civil Rights Act, it is my understanding that Republicans and Democrats, politicians just could not get on the same page. There were multiple drafts. The language was not being agreed upon and there were problems. And so Father Teddy Hesburgh actually stepped in and invited the politicians to his cabin in Wisconsin. And that is where over steak and cigars and whiskey and fishing and God knows what else, that is where the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was hammered out. Right. And so to know that a former president, let alone Father Hesburg, played that role, of course, Notre Dame needs to be involved in the public interest sector. Right. This is our legacy. This is what we do. We are defenders of civil rights in the United States. And so it's incredible that public interest students would have this opportunity to work on cool civil rights projects right out of graduation. Mm. Thinking about that legacy brings another question to mind. In our last episode, we talked about the challenge that students interested in public interest face when they come to law school, given the strong pull that there is to go the private sector route. How were you able to stay committed to working in public interest, given the temptations that exist to go another direction? Yeah, well, <laughs> So full disclosure, Max, my first summer, I was actually a summer associate at a large law firm. And so I was tempted by, you know, the pretty penny and the shiny gold buildings, right, that are big law. But it was really clear to me that that was not the right fit, right? I just could not get like super interested in redlining nursing home acquisition contracts. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is very important work. It's just like, it was not my best work, right? I just, I could not get behind it all the way. And so after that, I really was kind of freaked out. I was like, okay, I like public interest work. Everyone says I'm not going to make any money. I don't know how I'm going to get a job. What the heck? And so I went to Patty and freaked out like everyone does at some point in their law school career. And she offered me M&Ms. And then she told me, it's going to be fine if you want to do public interest work, girl, do it. And so I was like, okay, right? You just, I needed the encouragement. I needed the extra push to be like, it is okay that you did the thing that everybody does. And it was not your thing. So go see if a nonprofit is. And if it's not, then look into the government. And if being a government attorney isn't your thing, then look into something else, right? What's great about a law degree is it's a terminal degree. And so for me, public interest work is what I am passionate about, right? Like that became clear to me through a series of like decisions and wrong decisions and left turns and whatever. But at the end of the day, even if you start your career doing something and it turns out not to be your favorite thing, it's really not that hard to move. And I think that's really important to remember as well. So even if you start out doing big law or small law or public interest or whatever, 
if you get into it and you hate it, don't be miserable. You have a terminal degree. You can learn something else, a different topic. You have skills, right? And so I think that's the biggest thing to remind people is that it felt really daunting to me. And I think a lot of my friends during 3L years to have to figure out what you're going to do for the quote rest of your life. Are you going to be a big law litigator? Are you going to be a transactional attorney? And it's like, don't put yourself in a box. You just graduated, get a job, learn some skills and reevaluate in two years if you have to. Mm. That's fantastic advice. And I can say as somebody who's this year, 10 years removed from his graduation at the law school, that it that advice maintains itself throughout your career. You know, I was an ACLU attorney. I was a criminal prosecutor. I was in private practice. I consulted. Your career, if you have the humility to understand that it doesn't have to be one thing, but it can be a lot of different things, I think you can get really far with that. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Madison, before we wrap up, would you like to say a bit about the Uptown People's Law Center and the work that it does? Absolutely. So the Uptown People's Law Center is located in Uptown Chicago. <laughs> um, we do social security work, tenants rights work, and prisoner rights work. I am on the prison litigation team. And so I do mostly, I mean, exclusively class action civil rights work. It's mostly the Rasho litigation agreement. I do some work on the solitary confinement and medical care cases, um, but much, much, much less. They're an incredible legal aid nonprofit. They've been an institution in the community for, I think, since the 20s and 30s. Um, they've you know, moved around the block a couple of times. But my favorite part about working in Uptown is that anytime I go into a restaurant to get lunch or to grab a coffee, they say, oh, you're from Uptown. How's Alan? How's Tony? Everyone knows the executive director. Everyone knows the woman who answers the phone. It's just really an incredible community to be a part of. So shameless plug, if anyone is looking for fellowships for next year or in two years or three years, please check out the Uptown People's Law Center. I cannot say enough positive things about the opportunities they've given me, the training they've already provided me, and I mean, the support, right? They're great. I do want to encourage all of the listeners to go to the Uptown People's Law Center's website and check out the Rasho v. Jeffries website page. It has tons of public information, tons of public court filings, and most interestingly to me, all of the independent court monitor reports. So what's important about these reports is that this court monitor was not chosen by plaintiffs, right? It wasn't like we chose the most liberal person we could find to go into prisons and point out all of the things we didn't like. This person was mutually agreed upon by defendants, IDOC, and by plaintiffs. We chose him and he neutrally went in, observed and wrote these reports. So anyone who's interested in prison reform at all, I think should read them because it gives I think a pretty scathing review, but an accurate one on what's happening in Illinois prisons today. Madison Kemker is a fellow with the Uptown People's Law Center in Chicago, where she works to help reform the way people with serious mental illness are treated in Illinois prisons today. Madison, thank you for the work that you do and for making all of us at Notre Dame proud. And that's it for part two of our series on public interest law. Thanks for listening. The DEI podcast at Notre Dame Law School is produced by Notre Dame Studios. Tune in next time for the conclusion of our series on public interest, where we'll sit down with Annika Nielsen Kim, another of the law school's Thomas L. Schaefer Public Interest Fellows. 
Annika is a fellow with Legal Aid Chicago, where she focuses on preventing home loss due to hardships brought on by COVID-19. If you enjoyed today's episode, you won't want to miss our conversation with Annika. But until then, take care.